0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. In our series, we've been talking about the power of music. Music is, is so powerful that it has the ability to, you just hear a couple notes you might hear just one, uh, the opening bar of a song, and you already know the whole song. You already know what song it is. You know the artist. Um, you can, you even maybe takes you back to memories. It maybe even brings nostalgia back. So much can happen through the artistry of music, and I would like to demonstrate that with you with a little exercise, okay? So I'm going to need some participation. Can you, can you do that for me? Can you do that? Cooper City, West Pines. you guys can do that, okay? All right. So here's what I'm gonna do. We're gonna play uh, just the opening bar of a song, okay? And you are going to just just shout out, okay, whether it's, uh, whether the artist or the name of the song, I want you to shout out as soon as you know it. And here's what we've done. We've, just to reflect all the generations present here uh, at City Rev. We've picked one song for every generation. You say, "Well, how did you do that?" We went to some authorities. It's either from Billboard or Rolling Stone. They picked like the greatest song of that decade. Okay, so this is not just my personal opinion. That's where we went to to get these songs. Okay, so we're gonna start with you Gen Z. Okay, this is um, we're gonna start with 2010s. Okay, 2020s is not done yet, um, but 2010s. Okay, according to Billboard. This was the greatest song from 2010s. Now, when I play this, as soon as you know the artist or the song name, just shout it out, okay? Can you do this? You guys ready? Okay, you're ready. All right. Greatest song, allegedly, apparently, from the 2010s is this. Bruno Mars, Mars. Uptown Funk. You guys knew it. Some of you started dancing, okay? Okay. The rhythm got you. You just couldn't, you couldn't withstand it, okay? Now, again, don't be mad. I, if you don't like that song, okay, I didn't pick it. I don't need a bunch of Swifties sending me angry emails, okay? <laughs> Not my choice, okay? Apparently, 2010s for you, Gen Z. Okay, for those of us millennials, okay, we're going to go to the 90s. This is uh, the best song of the 90s. And by the way, I mean, this one's pretty undisputed, all right? This is... I didn't pick it, but it is the greatest one. Okay, so go ahead, from the 90s. You know it. Yeah, who is it? Nirvana, okay, that's right. Uh, it, It. I mean, it's just undisputed. Okay, now we're gonna roll it back. Gen X. Now we're gonna go, it's like three that are like, I'm proud to be in that generation. I think three of you are proud. Okay. I think the reason for your reluctance is we've got to go to the 80s in this. It's messy, okay? It's weird and wonderful in the 80s, okay? This was a little more difficult, okay? But according to the experts, this is the greatest song from the 80s. Give it to me. Uh. Terrible. Prince, come on. What a disappointment. We all know this is actually the greatest song from the 80s. Okay, give it to me, this is the best one. That's the best one right there, right? Who is it? Michael Jack, that's the best one, that's the best one. Okay, we're rolling it back to you boomers. All right. Now, we're just gonna skip the 70s, because yikes, okay? We're just gonna go to the 60s, Best song of the 1960s, according to Billboard, is this one right here. What is it? The Twist. Chubby Checker. What a name, man. Whatever. Okay, those are the greatest songs. Okay, now when you just hear the riff, okay, all you had to hear, we heard like no vocals, okay, we just heard the opening line. You immediately knew who it was. Some of you immediately started singing and dancing, okay. There was some waving of your hands in the air, okay. Like it, you, you just immediately responded to the music. Music has that kind of power, okay. It, it stir it, it draws back memory. You know the whole song, you know all the lyrics, you know the artist. You maybe even remember where you were, I mean, you. You hear that song, and it imports all this nostalgia. I mean, it stirs your emotions, okay? Music has an incredible power over us. And part of the power that music has is anthropologists, sociologists, we talked about this a little bit last week, they they point out that you never really come across a, a, a generation, a collection of humans. Like, you never come across some abandoned village of humans that no one ever knew about and they have no idea what music is. Like every human, it's so tied into the human expression that music is. The other thing that we learn from uh, just that exercise that we did is how much music evolves from generation to generation. It's such a cultural expression that there's always new ways that it is expressed through the generations, but it's always there. Music is so tied into our psyche, our emotions. You cannot underestimate the power of music as a, a primal art form for humanity. Don't underestimate the power of music with human beings. But here's what the scripture points out. Don't underestimate the role of music in your spirituality. Don't underestimate the role of music in your spiritual vibrancy. Don't underestimate the role of music and its importance in your spiritual growth. Don't underestimate the the role of music and how God uses it to transform you. Music is powerful and it's so important that the longest book in the Bible is full of music. It's the Psalms. In this series, we're touching down on these Psalms. And particularly, we're looking at the songwriters. And as we look at their stories, their backstory, what we learn about some of the primary songwriters in the Psalms, some of the, the texture, the significance of these Psalms come alive. And so we're going to take a look at another songwriter today. I want you to open, with, to open your Bible to Psalm 84. If you have a, a Bible or a Bible app, I want you to open to Psalm 84. Last week, we took a look at the Psalm writer, uh, King David. And today, we're going to look at a different songwriter, Psalm 84. Let's just look at the title. Here's what it says. To the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, this is actually that title. The, the translator puts a title in. It's usually in, emboldened. Um, but the, the smaller title in all caps, That's actually part of the text. That's actually part of, uh, of God's word, is that smaller title. And here's what it says. It ta- first talks about, it's for a choir. The second term, it says according to the getith. Often in these psalm titles, it'll, there will be an unfamiliar word. Typically, what the translator has done has taken the ancient original Hebrew and transliterated, just basically gone letter by letter into the English so that we have kind of like the English version of a Hebrew word. By the way, um, that's the word hallelujah. Now, that one actually is a familiar word for us but that is a Hebrew word that means praise the Lord and what's so beautiful about that word is that is a, a Hebrew word that generation after generation all the way back uh, three, four thousand years God's people have been using that word to sing praises to God It means praise the Lord is what the word hallelujah means In this case the word getith and you'll notice other words like that that are not familiar in these titles and but you'll notice there's usually a footnote in your translation and it will say something something like a musical or liturgical term. And really what they're saying is, um, and you can, you can research these terms, the, the, the scholars and translators are not exactly sure what it means. There's some good theories about them. Some of them might be related to a particular instrument or a particular way the song is supposed to go. Maybe it's an upbeat song or a slow song or it may be something more liturgical, like meaning like it's for a particular feast or occasion. Either way, because they're not 100% sure what it's supposed to be, they leave actually what some of those technical terms mean and just put a footnote in it. Um, And so what we're gonna move to to the next part of the title, which we do know exactly what it means, it's the songwriter, the sons of Korah. Now, just a review on the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms, half of them are anonymous. Um, There's another, uh, or I'm sorry, a third of them, 50 of them, a third of them are anonymous. Half, almost half of them are written by uh, King David. The remainder, there's a couple prominent songwriters that uh, write the remainder of them. The sons of Korah are one of the more prominent songwriters. They write 11 of the Psalms. So we are in Psalm 84. M- many of their songs are there in the, uh, the 80s of, of Psalms, like, the, like 84 and, and some around there. The others are primarily in the 40s, so like Psalm 42, 47, in the 40s and the 80s is where you'll find the songs written by the sons of Korah. Now, these are the descendants of a person named Korah, and who Korah is is actually important. Korah is a a Levite. In other words, he's a descendant of a, a man by the name of Levi. Just to back up a little bit, Jacob, renamed Israel, grandson of Abraham, had 12 sons, those sons and their descendants become the 12 tribes of Israel. So for example, David is descended from Judah, one of the sons of of Israel, and so David is of the tribe of Judah. Um, Levi was another one of the tribes of Israel, and when when they moved into the Promised Land and all the other tribes got a territory to settle in, Levi was intentionally not given a territory. So the tribe of Levi does not have its own territory. The reason for that is Levi were the, the the tribe of Levi were the ministers. And so they were given cities in all of the tribes. So they were spread out through all of the tribes. To be the ministers, so they were. They ministered in the temple and they ministered to God's people. And they were they were shepherd figures and they were um, musicians. We talked about a little bit last week. So Korah is one of the descendants of Levi, and he lived. He was a contemporary to Moses. Moses, when he was leading them through the out of the Exodus and through the wilderness, Moses Moses was from Levi. His brother Aaron was from Levi, and Aaron was the first first high priest set aside of all the other Levites, the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And the only the high priest could do that. Korah was from the same tribe, also of the tribe of Levi, and he was a contemporary to Moses and uh, and Aaron. Now there's an episode that took place that we're going to talk about in a few minutes that makes Korah very significant. These Psalms are written by the descendants of Korah. Now, the backstory here is, is fascinating, but just put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. Let's jump into the psalm itself. Let's pick it up in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Now pause with me there in the the first, uh, the first strain here. He talks about the dwelling place of God. He talks about the courts um, and the house of God. He's specifically talking about the temple. There's many ways that they Describe the temple, the house of the Lord, the temple, his courts, his house, his tabernacle. Sometimes they just refer to, to it as Zion, which is the mountain on which uh, the temple sits. And he's singing about how wonderful it is to be at the, at the temple, in the courts, in the house of God. Why? Because that is where the presence of God is specially located. All right, now this is significant when the tabernacle was built and when the temple eventually was built to replace the tabernacle, the presence of God came down very dramatically to dwell in the innermost part, the Holy of Holies. And so uh, that's why only the high priest was allowed to go behind that curtain into the innermost part of the Holy of Holies, and only once a year. And they were warned, if anyone goes to stand before God in the Holy of Holies, either who's not the high priest, or hasn't gone through all the ritual the high priest does, or it's at the wrong time, if anyone just stands before God, they'll be struck dead in his presence. He is that holy. His glory is that profound. His presence specially dwelled in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and the temple. Now, this is not to say that God is not omnipresent. I mean, God's people, they could pray to God, talk to God, worship God, wherever they were because God is omnipresent. But there was a special, tangible expression of his presence there in the temple in the Holy of Holies. So when they would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, especially if they're um, from some of the farther tribes, they would come three times a year for the feast. There was this special expectation of entering more directly into the presence of God. You follow me? Okay. The sons of Korah are singing about how incredible it is to enter into the presence of God. They're saying, man, it's so wonderful to be, to experience the presence of God as we come to to the temple, into his courts, into his house, into his dwelling place, to Mount Zion. As we come to this place, it is so wonderful. Now here are the terms he uses. And it's a little bit misleading, I think, in some ways for us as moderns. They say, how lovely is your dwelling place? Now, it's an accurate translation because the word there means something that I love. So it's natural to translate into English, lovely. But he's saying, I love being in your presence. Um, Lovely, though, carries this kind of uh, soft, kind of weak, kind of uh, desire. It's like flowers are lovely, okay? Like a lace doily is lovely, okay? But he's saying your presence is lovely, and then he tacks on to that Lord of hosts, that is one of the most powerful, terrifying terms for God. By hosts, it means armies. So he's saying, commander general of the awesome armies of heaven. So in our sense, we like, lovely, oh, it's just so nice. But there, it, it kind of removes some of the strength. He's saying, I love being in your presence, you awesome, powerful, terrifying God of the armies of heaven. I love being in your presence. And then he says, he starts describing it, and he says, my soul longs for it. He says, it faints for it. He's like, man, I I so need your presence that when I'm not there in your presence, I feel like I'm languishing away. He says, my, my heart and flesh, they cry out for God. I mean, it's just really explicit affection. In fact, you read this, you're like, Whoa, okay. I mean, like, I was with you, but like, simmer down a little bit, sons of Korah. Like, you know, I don't know if like I'm like fainting over here. Like, I, you really long for the presence of God. This is actually a, one of the unique. Uh, Parts of the personality of these psalms written by this particular group. They're some of the most explicitly affectionate and desirous of God himself and his presence. Let me give you an example. Look at this. I'm just going to bounce over to Psalm uh, 42. Listen to what Psalm 42 says, and this may be familiar to you. To the choir master, a maskil, that's another one of those um, liturgical um, musical words. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah, so it's one of their psalms. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And you see the intensity there? Just the, the real explicit affection, I need your presence. I need to come into your presence. I need to experience that. He says, my soul is longing. It's like it's parched. It's like I, I, I'm so needing a cool draft of water that it's like I can think of nothing else. It's like my, my, my tongue is swollen in my mouth. It's like my throat is parched. I'm like, uh, it's like I'm crawling and clawing for a, a, a deep drink from a, a s- stream of flowing waters. He said, that's how much I'm I'm longing for the presence of God. And he uses similar language in this psalm as in the other psalm. He says, um, I long to appear before him, and it calls him the living God. I want to experience, I want to be reminded that God is alive and he's living. I want to enter into his presence. One of the markers of the psalms written by the sons of Korah is really intense, emotive, explicit affection and desire for the presence of God. Then they say, like a bird finding a place to nest. Like a bird circling until it finds its home. So do I find my home in your courts, in your presence. I make my home in your presence. I'm at peace. I'm at rest. That's where I belong. That's where I I relax and say, this is where I was meant to be when I make my home in your presence. That's where I uh, abide, where I dwell. And he says, and blessed is everyone who dwells in the presence of God, singing praises to him forever. Blessed are those who so hunger and desire the presence of God that they make their dwelling there, they remain there, they stay there, they find their home there singing to the Lord. All right, watch where he goes from here. Let's pick it up in verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart, this is so beautiful, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Bacchah, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. This word selah that's repeated in this psalm and many others is a Hebrew word that means pause and reflect. Maybe there would be a musical interlude here where people are told to stop during that instrumental and to reflect and meditate on those words. What does he say? He says, um, I love this. He says, blessed are those whose heart is a highway to Zion who's, in other words, deep down in their heart, their desire, their intention, their pursuit is to get to Zion, is to get into the presence of God. Those whose heart desires that presence of God, those whose heart is a fast lane, those whose heart are on the war path, those whose heart are are, are racing after the presence of the Lord, they will be blessed. It says they will go from strength to strength. They will gain greater and greater strength. And he says even though they may be in, in uh, the wilderness, in the dry valley, they will make springs for themselves they will they will find strength because they're running into the presence of God and that's where they will draw strength and then also it will rain upon them they will find strength because their heart is running after the presence of God they have a high priority a high value a high pursuit of wanting to experience the presence of God and he says um, and he references this phrase appearing before God Okay, now we've got to stop for a second. This psalm, at this point, and then through the rest of the psalm, is starting to pick up words. They're using words to describe the psalm about pursuing the presence of God. But they're going to start using words more and more through the rest of the psalm that, re- that are used and relate back to this one particular episode in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 16. It's an episode around their ancestor, Korah. Now we're not gonna turn to number 16 because it's a it's a long story. I encourage you to go back and read it this week. It's a profound story and it's a shocking story. Here's what happens. Moses has just led God's people into the wilderness. They've been wandering around. There's manna that's being provided for them. Uh, They have a tabernacle that's being built. They're they're following a pillar of cloud and and a pillar of fire by day and night. And they're moving around and going through the wilderness, following God and learning to be his people. As I said, there's uh, two men, chiefly Moses, and then his brother Aaron that are the leaders, both of the tribe of Levi. Aaron is like the, the shepherd leader. Aaron is the high priest. He's the one that he and his sons are the ones that are ministering in the tabernacle. Aaron is the one that goes into that, um, that special presence of the Lord in, in the Holy of Holies. Well, there's another man from their tribe, another Levite by the name of Korah, their ancestor. And he stirs up some other Levites and some other people from some other tribes and they're angry. And Korah approaches Moses and Aaron and he says this, why are you two the only ones that can go into God's presence like that? Like what what makes you two special? I'm a Levite too? Why can't I go in the Holy of Holies? Why Why can't I go? What makes you two set apart? Why can't we all do it? Moses, you know what Moses does? He throws himself on his face. And he says, please don't do this. And they persist. Korah persists. He's leading a rebellion in the middle of the wilderness. And Moses says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to each of you take a censer of incense. Imagine like a ladle with rocks of incense. You each are going to take one and Aaron's going to take one and you're going to each bring that incense tomorrow burning before the Lord and we will see whose incense God accepts. I'll leave it in God's hands. So the next day shows up. Korah and this whole crowd of people now who are really upset. Yeah, us too. Like what makes Aaron so special? And so they all come. They've all got their censer full of incense and Aaron has his too. And it says all of a sudden, the same word used here, the glory of God appears. In other words, they all are now appearing before the glory of God. It descends on the congregation. And Moses shouts Get away from the sons of Korah and the, the tents of these wicked men. And as he shouts, the ground opens up beneath them and swallows them alive and closes up behind them. Hmm. And they learned a valuable lesson that day. It's a shocking, shocking story of the judgment of God. And you say, whoa, that's intense. Like, isn't, isn't that overkill? And maybe it's because we're so used to the mercy of God that we've forgotten what sin, what judgment for sin actually looks like. What was going on with, the, with Korah and this rebellion? It's known now throughout the rest of Scripture as Korah's rebellion. What's going on with Korah? For him, bringing incense before God was not about God, was it? It was about, about him. It was about his position. It's, so oh, why can't I do it? It's what I want. I want to be able to go do that. I, this, the, his bringing his offering, his worship before the Lord was about him. So who was actually the object of his own worship? He was. His worship was not about God, it was about him. Now what is his descendants? Now here's the crazy thing, we learn as we go through Numbers, some of his descendants are spared, and his sons are spared, and then all of these generations later, his sons become one of his descendants, become one of the most prominent psalm writers, talking about their desire for the presence of God but this time their desire is actually for God let's wrap up the psalm look what it says in verse 9 behold our shield O God look on the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere look at this I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is the sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The sons of Korah, their song to God is desiring to stand before God, not for themselves, but it's true, godly, right worship. They just want the presence of God. It's not about them. They're like, I'll be a door holder. I don't care. They don't need position. They don't need what they want. It's not about them just as long as they get to experience entering into the presence of the living God. So long as they don't dwell in the tents of wickedness, same language used in Numbers 16. So long as they don't don't follow in the trend of, of whatever the tents of wickedness are of that day, they just want to enter the presence of God. because it's God, because it's the living God, because there is a being that is alive, who's actually the source of all life. Actually, we're only alive because he's alive. He's the source of all life, and we have the privilege of entering into his presence. They crave his presence. Here's what's so profound about these psalms. These descendants all have experienced the grace and mercy of God because they all deserve the judgment of the house of Korah. But these descendants always know they've been spared. They've tasted the mercy and grace of God. And so that grace and mercy has fixed their worship on the right thing, on God, not themselves. And because they've tasted the grace and mercy of God, they have, the, they have stirred up their affection. They're some of the most affectionate psalms for the presence of God. In other words, here's the, here's the power and beauty of God. God. This is the redemption. This is the redemption of the house of Korah. The house of Korah experienced grace and mercy. And now they teach us how to worship the presence of the Lord. So here's the, the, the big takeaway from the sons of Korah and this Psalm in particular, is that ultimately, worship is not about you. It's not about me. Worship is not about, um, it's not about the medium, it's about the subject. It's like this, if you uh, have a friend or you know someone who's a new grandparent, 100% chance they have pictures of their grandchildren on their phone. Yes? Yes, 100% chance, okay? And they have pictures of their grandchildren on their phone, and 50% chance they'll show you those pictures without even being asked, okay? And as they show you those pictures, they're, they're, going to be scrolling through them. Some of them maybe they took, maybe some of them maybe a professional photographer took, and and they were were given to them by, by their kids. And as they're looking through this, I tell you what they will not be talking about. The quality of the photography. They're not gonna be like, I just love how the light captures, you know, this scene of my grandbaby. Like, you know, this one's not so good. Don't look at that one. The photography is just kind of subpar here. But this one, I mean, the way the background is with the foreground and all that, they don't care. They're like, look at this beautiful child. There may be like half a face in the picture. Like, they don't care. Because it's the object, not the medium. It's like, you know, at at a wedding, I have the, the privilege of you know, having, in, in many weddings, having a very up-close and personal view of what's happening at a wedding. And there was one wedding I'll, I'll never forget, it was a couple, they had been dating um, for like six, seven years, they were high school sweethearts. I think it might have been their first date, they, each other was like their first dating relationship. They knew each other far better than most couples that I marry. they'd known each other for the better part of a decade. And the doors open And she walks into the back of the auditorium, and he goes like this, (gasps) and covers his mouth, like tears immediately flowing down his face. I thought he was going to pass out. I'm like, "You, you have seen her before, right? Is this the right person? Did we get the wrong bride? You know? What was it? I mean... It, the groom, when he sees his bride, he's not saying, like, uh, we should have picked a better hairstylist. Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure. Like, okay, if that's what's going through the groom's mind, we got a problem, all right? Like, what is he looking at? That's his bride. That's his, his other half. That's who that, that's who he, he was made for. I mean, th- these are the things. It's her. It's the object, not the medium. Here's what we w- learn about the sons of Korah. It's not about them, it's about the object that they're worshiping. And because the object that they're worshiping is the living God, what could be more soaring experience than to experience the living God? This is what the the sons of Korah teach us. I mean, imagine... What they're trying, what what they're what they're talking about, what they're grasping. I mean, the the living God is the source of all joy. He invented it. It flows from him. He's He's the source of power. He invented power. So everything's safely in his hands. He's the one who knows you more than anyone could imagine, including yourself. He actually knit you together. There's no more intimacy than being in the presence of your creator. He knows everything about you, every thought, and every word. And somehow he loves you more than you can imagine. That's what cascades out. And they're like, if I could just... If I could just get a fraction of the presence of the living God. What do we learn from the sons of Korah? I want you to think of three things. The first is this: dwell in the presence of the Lord. This is the language they use. Make your home in the presence of the Lord. Listen, when Jesus Christ dies on the cross to pay for our sins, you know, you may know what happened in the Holy of Holies. The veil that separated people from going into the Holy of Holies, you know, like where you would die unless you were the high priest on the Day of Atonement? That veil got torn. Why? Because the ultimate sacrifice who pays for our sins once and for all, the Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus just dies for our sins. He rises again, but in his death, he makes the punishment. So he separate. he removes the veil. He, he, we can now all because of Jesus enter into his presence. How much do we enter into his presence? It's shocking. The Holy Spirit, the one of the persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, actually comes into us. And you are actually called a temple because you're housing the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus accomplished for you. That's the presence of God. Okay, but here's what I want you to, I want you to, let's dig a little deeper for a second. The New Testament says it like this, you are stones of the holy house. Yes, we're the body of Christ, but we're each part of the body. So there's something about the unique presence of God when the stones come together to form the house. There's something about an expression of the body of Christ when all the parts of the body are using their gift and working together. Yes, Israel can worship God, you know, if they're way far north in the tribe of Dan, God's omnipotent, of course they can worship, but there's something uniquely powerful when they gathered into the temple in the presence of God. Yes, you can worship God in your car, on your commute, or alone uh, as you're you're worshiping the Lord in the morning doing your devotions, but there's something profound when all the stones housing the presence of God come together to form the temple, there's something profound profound when the church gathers that God de- brings a part of his presence more potently. Church, this is going against the stream of our culture right now. By and large, the, the church in our culture, in our generation, is going the opposite direction. That more and more committed Christians are taking notes from, the, from the, the, the stream of culture, which is a very on-demand culture. There's very few TV shows that I, I make sure I watch when it airs. I just I'll stream it later. There's music. I don't listen to the radio, I stream it. I listen to the song I want when I want. I, my education or my coaching, like a, I'll download the video or the master class when I want it. And so more and more Christians are doing that. with They're not making, following the commands of Scripture, where it says, do not neglect the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Christian, run against the flow of culture and say there is something about the presence of God when we gather together that I will not miss. I will make it my dwelling for me and my children, it says. In Psalm 84, I will make it my dwelling. I will come back into the house of the Lord. That is where that is my abode. That is where I nest. That is where I come back, week after week, as I gather together in the presence to experience the presence of God, hearing the word and singing back to Him. Make the presence of God your dwelling place. Here's the second one. Second one is what we learn: the it's about the object of worship, not the medium. It's not about us. Every other music is about, well, I like this note progression, chord progression, I like the beat, I like the nostalgia it brings into my life. Every other type of music, it's for you, whatever you want, how it stirs you, how it moves you, but not worship music. Worship music is about God. And for many years, many years over the generations, Many seasoned Christians have fallen into Korah's error where they've taken moment of worship and misunderstood it as being something for themselves. So they wait. I will engage worship when it's the song I like, the worship set is the length I like, at the decibel I like, from the generation I like, with the instruments I like. Then I will sing. Why? Because when I offer my censor, incense, it's really for me, then who is the object of our worship? Don't fall into Korah's error. Worship is not for you, it's for God. It doesn't matter if it's Gregorian chants, if it's electronic EDM like new worship, somewhere in between, it doesn't matter if the object is God. If we're obsessed with God, the medium doesn't matter. The subject does. In fact, we learn that from Korah. Listen to what they say in Psalm 47. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Listen to this. Clap your hands, all peoples. That's a command. It's not an option. Clap your hand, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs. That's a command, not biblically optional. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Listen to this. Sing praises to God. Sing praises, commands. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. The the. All the psalm is full of commands. We don't raise our hands in worship because it's some modern thing we decided was cool. It's commanded in the psalms. Lift up holy hands to God. We, we don't play loud songs because it's like, well, you know, it's just what we like. That's commanded. We don't write new songs. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. It's commanded to us. We're com- we sing not because we like the song, not because, oh, it's the perfect one I've been thinking about. No, we sing because it's God. That's why we sing. We all sing. Sometimes people are like, well, you know, it's just, I'm not very musical. and Frankly, I don't think anyone else wants me to sing. Okay, like I'd sing, but like ain't nobody want to hear that, all right? See, now if I was a good singer, then I would sing. Can I tell you, it actually might be harder on those who are good singers? Because they're like, oh, here comes the verse. I'm going to nail that harmony, right? As I sing, like, mmm, that sounded good, you know? It's, the same thing. Whether out of insecurity or pride, we can so easily make worship about us. Sing to the Lord, not to you, to the Lord. Here's the last one. Renewal of a passion for God comes by remembering that you've been rescued. The sons of Korah, Give us that. You say, I'm dry spiritually. Can you go back to your rescue? Renewal comes by remembering your rescue. You know what you and I deserve? If we were judged by just so far today, the ground opening up and swallowing us whole. Because we stand before a holy God. But so great is his mercy. That is not meant to strike fear because we know the power of the cross. Because of Jesus, not only have we escaped what we deserve, which is an eternity in hell, because of Jesus, we're adopted as sons and daughters, and not only go into the presence of our king, we go into the warmth of the presence of the embrace of a father. That's what God has done. Instead of striking us down, which each one of us deserve, he he turns all of of our circumstances around for our good we have his favor on us we have his his transformation in our hearts saving us from the chains of sin we have such an astonishing rescue he's raised our lives back to life and we will spend eternity in his presence that's why the ultimate blessing of God is nothing he could do in your life in this on this earth is that what your soul is waiting for is one day when you stand before him in heaven and you get the delight and the joy of being in his presence. When Jesus returns, the moment we hear the trumpet sound and Jesus returns, we know the moment our soul has been waiting for is upon us. That's what's coming for you, Christian. He calls us to worship to offer worship because he's worthy. Let's pray. Maybe some of you are here and and you say, I'm not sure I've escaped the judgment that I deserve. I've been just trying to live right or be a good person. Maybe you're like, no, I know I'm far away from God. It doesn't matter be rescued today, once and for all. It's a one-time moment where you put your faith in Jesus, that his death and resurrection is what saves you. Would you put your faith in Jesus? I wanna lead you in a simple prayer. Right there in your seat, just pray this, say, silently, just to Jesus, say, Jesus, I make you my king. You saved me from the judgment I deserved, and you've given me life. I will follow you. I will worship you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.